Thank you. All right, turn with me to Matthew 6. We're studying verses 25 to 34. Uh, and we have seen in this passage thus far that Jesus three times says, do not worry, and thus gives us three reasons for not worrying uh, or why worrying about the necessities of life is wrong. Uh, in verses 25 to 30, he says that worrying, worry is unfaithful to your father. Verses 31 to 33, it's uncharacteristic of your faith. And verse 34, it's unwise in light of your future. And last week, we were working our way through this first point of worries being unfaithful to your father. So let's read verses 25 to 30 again. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, or, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now Jesus starts off and he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. And those words, do not be worried, we said before, they're in a present active imperative verb. That means stop worrying. Uh, stop being worried. Uh, they were worrying about the necessities of life right then, and Jesus says, stop it. And it carries the idea of continuous action. Stop worrying and continue to stop worrying. Uh, it's an idea of stopping what is already happening and never starting it again. So worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet, as I said before, it's a sin which Christians commit perhaps more frequently than any other. Uh, and then we saw that the word life in there, do not worry about your life, is a Greek word which is a comprehensive term. It encompasses all of a person's being, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Uh, so Jesus is referring to life in its fullest possible sense. Absolutely nothing in any aspect of our lives, internal or external, justifies our being worried when we have the master that we do. Now, what specifically does he refer to in this passage? Food, water, and clothing. Don't worry about those things. Uh, Jesus recognizes that man in his fallen covetousness tends to devote his whole life to caring for externals. All of us tend to devote our lives to our food, our house, our clothes, and those kind of things. But at the end of verse 25, he puts it all into perspective. He says it's not life more than food and the body more than just clothing. Uh, you know, the body isn't the end of all. Life is not contained in this body. Uh, life is contained in the very nature of God. I live not because my body lives, but because God gives my body life. Life is more than the body, more than food, more than clothes. Uh, worry is the opposite of contentment, uh, which should be the believer's normal and consistent state of mind. Uh, believer's contentment is found only in God and only in him. Uh, he owns, controls, and provides everything we possess and will ever need. Uh, now, the needs that Jesus mentions here are the things that are the most basic. What we eat, what we drink what we put on. Those are things every person in every age has needed. But because most Western Christians have them in abundance, uh, we don't often worry about them. However, throughout Bible times, food and water could seldom be taken for granted. And yet Jesus says, don't worry. Do not be worried about it. Those things are important. They're not as important as life itself. And then he begins talking about worrying about food. And 
he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you worth more than they are? Uh, birds are a great illustration of creatures that don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. They don't have powers of self-consciousness or advanced cognitive processes or the ability to reason, but God gave birds, as well as all the other animals, this innate instinct that gives them the capacity to find what is necessary to live. So Jesus is saying, if God takes care of the birds in that way, don't you think he's going to take care of you too? And aren't you a lot, aren't you worth a whole lot more than a bird? Uh, don't you think God's going to feed you like he does them? And so that's, if, if God gives you the greater gift, which is life, don't you think he's going to give you the lesser gift, which is sustaining you with food? Of course he will. So don't worry about that. Uh, then he gives an illustration about life expectancy. He says, which of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And we talked about the fact that the word life there is used in Greek to mean either height or stature or lifespan, lifetime. Uh, it was used in Luke 19.3 to refer to Zacchaeus being sp small in stature. Uh, but it's also used in Hebrews 11.11 11 to refer to Sarah as being past the time of life to bear children. So you have to look at the context as to how this word is translated. And Jesus did say, if you look at some of the versions, say, can he add a cubit to your life? That's what he said, cubit. But he's using that term. Uh, it's a length of measure, but he's using it uh, in the sense of an idiomatic expression referring to adding time to one's lifespan. Uh, David used a similar linear measure to refer to his lifespan in Psalm 39.5. Uh, so Jesus is using this cubit as a metaphorical device uh, for a shorter amount of time that one would wish to add to his life. And so that's why most of your Bible versions have changed that from cubit to hour. Uh, as I told you last week, I like the uh, NLT renders it as a, a single moment. Uh, I think that's a great way of rendering that. Uh, but anyway, they're both fine. We cannot add any additional time to our lives by worrying about it. You can worry yourself to death, but you can't worry yourself to life. Um, and yet that's what people do. But when you worry and fret about how long you're going to live, and when you worry about adding time to your life, you're distrusting God. And that's foolish because if you turn your life over to God and you're obedient to him, he will give you the fullness of days. I believe that the gift of a long life is a gift that comes because God wants you to live for spiritual reasons and purposes, not selfish and earthly ones. Uh, our concern should be to obey, honor, please, and glorify him, leaving everything else to his wisdom and care. In the Old Testament, it was obedience that resulted in God promising a person a long life. In Deuteronomy 5.13, which is repeated in Ephesians 6, 2, and 3, children were commanded to obey their parents why? So that you may live long on the earth. Uh, God said the same thing to all the Israelites in Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33, that if they obeyed all that he commanded them, they would prolong their days. Uh, in 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah was mortally ill. God sent Isaiah to tell him he's going to die. Hezekiah prays, and verse 3 says, he said, Remember now, O Yahweh, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And in other words, he recounted his obedience to God, and Yahweh heard his prayer and granted him 15 more years of life. Uh, now, if you're a believer but live a life of disobedience and sinfulness, God may take your life earlier than you expect. Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 11, with those who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Uh, God judged them, and some were sick, and others died. Uh, but obedience brings the fullness of life which the Lord has ordained for you. And so as we live a righteous, obedient life, there's a reason for us to be around. So God gives us life, and we're his children, and he bounds our life by his sovereign decree, and he wants us to live that life to its fullest. And sure, exercise helps. Uh, and good health helps because it keeps us alert and alive to the limits of our capacity while we're living that lifespan that he has ordained for us. But we can't worry ourselves into a longer life. So what are you worried about? You're going to live the fullness of your life if you're obedient to God. 
He'll give you all of your days, all of them. The third illustration Jesus gives has to do with clothing, or as one Bible teacher puts it, fashion. <laughs> the, there are some people who live for their clothes. Uh, you know anybody like that? I think you ladies probably know more than the men do. Uh, for those people, the most important place in their, wor in their world is their closet. Uh, they live for clothes. And so Jesus says in verse 28, and why are you worried about clothing? Now, as we've said before, in biblical times, if you were poor and the streams dried up and the crops didn't come and you had no money, you couldn't buy anything. But in our day, it isn't that we're worried that we don't have anything to wear, but rather we worry about the fact that maybe what we wear isn't really what's in style at the moment. Um, well, if you'll just hang on to those old clothes for about 15 or 20 years, I promise you they'll come back in style. Uh, and you'll, you'll be hip. <laughs> That's a different issue altogether there. <laughs> or people will say, and I plead guilty, I've said it before, well, I... I can't wear this. I can't wear that this Sunday because I wore it last Sunday. Yeah. Uh, many people live for clothes. They manifest a carnal, selfish, worldly, materialistic care for clothes. It isn't. It isn't so much that they're afraid they'll have nothing to wear. It's that they're afraid they won't be able to stand up and look their best and thus feed their pride. Uh, lusting after costly clothes is a sin, and it's a sin in our society. Uh, don't make a god out of fashion. Uh, that's why in 1 Peter 3, the apostle says that you ladies are not to be concerned with adorning yourselves with braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. It's not that you can't look nice. It's that those things are not to be the priority of your life. A godly character is to be the priority. And so Jesus speaks to this issue. Now in that culture, he was speaking to people, most of whom only had one or two sets of clothing. Uh, they were poor and many of them had clothes that was moth-eaten uh, with holes and tears in them. They were hardly better than rags. Uh, but look what he says in verse 28. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. In other words, take a good look at the wild lilies on the hill, side of this hill that we're sitting on. Really look at them. Uh, the Greek word translated observe means to observe thoroughly, uh, to consider accurately and diligently. Uh, and Jesus is uses the wild lilies as a general term here for all the wildflowers. Don't think that it was all, there were only wild lilies there. Uh, it's as though you're driving down the road and you come to one of those places, usually on interstates is where you see this, and uh, they've scattered wildflower seeds yes. and uh, along the side of the road, the flowers are blooming in all their glory and you say, hey, look at all the flocks out there. Well, you didn't mean that every single flower you saw was a phlox. Uh, there, there may be some daisies or some other flowers mixed in, but you use one type of flower as representative of the whole group. In fact, in studying for this lesson, I learned that there are actually 67 different species of phlox uh, in a wide variety of different shapes and colors. Uh, so the one term includes a lot of different looking flowers. Uh, that's how Jesus is using this term lilies. Uh, he is referring to all the wildflowers on the hillside, many of which were wild lilies. Uh, and the hillsides of Galilee at the right time of the year would be covered with the beauty of all these various flowers. So he, he says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. In other words, they don't work. Uh, they don't do anything to make themselves look nice. They just show forth their innate beauty. Uh, and then he says in verse 29, Yet I say to you, 
that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. You know, if you've ever been to some beautiful flower gardens, it's amazing at the variety and detail you see in the flowers there. I remember uh, Marsh and I once went and walked through the gardens at the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm sure some of you have probably done the same. And we just marveled at the beauty of the wide variety of flowers that are there. Uh, all the details and the various shadings of color in a single blossom can be amazing. And if you put those flowers under a microscope, there's a beauty there in terms of the intricate structure that none of those who heard Jesus' words that day could ever imagine. They truly do exceed the beauty of all of Solomon's gorgeous robes. Now, how do they grow? Easily, freely, gorgeously, effortlessly. God just puts them there on the face of his earth to beautify it. This is a real indictment, if you think about it, of how we spend so much time and effort on our clothing and how we dress. Uh, the society keeps changing the fashion trends on us all the time so that you can't keep up with it. And if you try, you just spend more and more and more money. Uh, I remember that back in the days when I was required to wear a dress shirt and tie to work every day, it was impossible to keep up with what was in style so far as neckties went. Uh, first, there were the narrow ties, and then there were the really wide ties, and then there were the medium ties with flat bottoms, and uh, they were replaced by wide ties again. Uh, there were striped ties and solid ties and polka-dotted ties. Uh, I even had a collection of Christmas ties. Um, I was so glad to finally reach the point in life where I didn't have to wear neckties anymore. Uh, in fact, the only time you'll ever see me in a necktie now is if I'm officiating at a wedding or a funeral. Uh, otherwise, I refuse to wear one. <laughs> I, was, I was once at a conference with the, the father of biblical counseling, Dr. J. Adams, and someone there asked him why he never wore a necktie, and I'll always remember his answer. His answer was, the history of the necktie is the history of vanity. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've adopted that as my mantra now, and I refuse to wear them except on those two occasions. Uh, well, enough of that soapbox. Let's get back to the text here. So what Jesus is saying is that no matter what you do to yourself in terms of clothing, you can't do what God can do with a bunch of flowers. Uh, so why do you spend so much effort for such a result? And then he makes the point from the lesser to the greater in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now the word furnace there is better translated oven. Uh, it refers to a dome-like oven made of clay, bricks, and mud, which would be which could be heated by cheap combustibles such as grass. Uh, the women would gather dead and dying grass and flowers from the field and use it to quickly make a fire inside of the oven in order to bake bread. Uh, the dead grass and Flowers were easier to start a fire with than wood, so they would use the grass to start the fire and then add the dead twigs and branches to it in order to keep the fire going. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If God is willing to clothe the grass with such beauty for only a short time and then let it die and be burned up in an oven, don't you think he's going to take care of clothing you? Uh, you wor your worry just demonstrates a lack of faith in him. So don't worry about what you'll wear. Don't worry about how long you'll live. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. God takes care of all that. That's his category. A God who lavishes such beauty on a flower that only lasts a brief few days. Don't you think he's going to provide the necessary clothing for the one who is his eternal child? Jesus says 
To worry about things which we need to survive is sinful. And it shows a lack of faith. A person who worries about those things may have saving faith, but he doesn't have the faith that relies on God to finish what he's begun. Jesus is saying, you believe that God can redeem you, save you from sin, break the shackles of Satan, take you to heaven where he's prepared a place for you, and keep you for all eternity, and yet you don't trust him to supply your daily needs. We freely put our eternal destiny in his hands. But at times we refuse to believe he'll provide what we need to eat, drink, and wear. Now I've heard Christians say, well, worry isn't such a bad sin. Bad sins are things like murder and rape. Worry doesn't harm anyone else. So it's, it's not all that bad. That's absolutely wrong. Worry is not a trivial sin. First of all, worry does harm you. And since you're one of the image bearers of God, harming yourself by worrying to the point of physical or emotional or mental illness is a serious sin. But more than that, it isn't so much what worry does to you, it's what worry says about God. When you worry, you're in effect saying, God, I know you what you have said in your word, but I just don't know that I can trust you. So worry strikes a blow at the person and the promises of God. Listen to what John MacArthur has to say about this matter, particularly in terms of how serious the sin of worry truly is. Here's what he writes. Worry is not a trivial sin because it strikes a blow both at God's love and at God's integrity. Worry declares our Heavenly Father to be untrustworthy in His Word and His promises. To avow belief in the inerrancy of Scripture and in the next moment to express worry is to speak out of both sides of our mouth. Worry shows that we have that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspectives and understanding rather than by God's word. Worry is therefore not only debilitating and destructive, but maligns and impugns God." End quote. That really brings it home, doesn't it? Because why would you go around saying that you believe the Bible and then worry whether God's going to fulfill what he says in it. You see, worry means that you're mastered by your circumstances and not by the truth of God. Worry misunderstands your position as a child of God. Worry is a devastating sin. Worry is a debilitating, self-indulgent, self-absorbed anxiety that says, God can't take care of me and I've got to do this thing for myself. That's sin, and that makes God a liar. It ignores his love and demeans his power. Think of it this way. When Christians worry, they are making the trials and the circumstances of their lives a bigger issue than their salvation. They believe God will save them from eternal hell, but they just can't believe that he'll help them in this world. They, that, that simply doesn't make sense, does it? They ought to go back and reread what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, because it explains what God has given you. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I mean, you've got the hope of his calling, his glorious riches, and his almighty infinite power working on your behalf. So why are you worried about the small stuff? Basically then, if you worry, it's because you're not trusting your Heavenly Father. That's what it boils down to. And if you don't trust your Heavenly Father, it's because you don't know Him well enough. Because if you knew Him like you ought to, you'd trust Him, right? 
So you had better get into the Word of God and find out who He really is and how He supplied the needs of His people throughout all of history. And that'll give you confidence for the future. Folks, this is practical stuff. What the scriptures say and what Jesus says here, it's not pie in the sky. He will give you food. He will give you clothing. He will determine the length of your life and sustain it. That's very tangible stuff. You have no grounds for financial worry if your heart is right. The key is verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The key is that we need to put our heart and our treasure in heaven and God will take care of all the earthly things. But when we are not fresh in the word every day so that God is constantly in and on our minds and our hearts, then Satan is going to move into the vacuum and plant worry. And then worry pushes the Lord even further from our minds. Now, I was going to say, let's move on to the second reason that Jesus gives here why we're not to worry. But before I do, let me just pause and stop for a moment and find out if you have any questions or comments at this point. As I'm going through that, I'm hearing a lot of dead silence, which indicates to me you're either convicted or you're thinking, boy, is he stupid. <laughs> Yes. One thing that, like, when you're saying that, like, that I feel like I deal with is not, um, like, um, thinking that I'm, I'm worried that I won't understand what the will of God is for, for mm -hmm. us or for him. Yeah. Well, worrying about what the will of God is for us is one of those things that I always say, just be obedient to what, to his revealed will in his word, and he'll take care of you understanding what is his will is for you to obey his word and when you obey that whatever you want to do is fine as long as you're in obedience to his word so that's the key am i obedient to what he's already revealed if i'm obedient to what he's revealed he'll he'll reveal the rest of it to you in his time Yeah, you don't worry about failing in the future. Yes, that's right. and that's actually very realistic that that happens. Like, mm -hmm. oh no, I'm going to do this again. But we just have to come to the Lord and say, I'm broken and I can't do this. And yep. I need you to do it for me. Because yep. it, we will fail in the future again. And, and, we, and we just keep it's already paid confessing that sin and getting back right on the track and keeping going. Think it's wrong to buy clothes. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> it's not wrong to buy clothes. I did not say that. What about my ties? You can abandon those. I think there's a couple extra ingredients we have to think about. The world is moving so fast and we have to think so quickly. There's so many things to consider when thinking that it makes it makes us more prone to worry because we're not able to slow down and think like God wants us to think and to depend upon him and not to worry. Mm -hmm. It's like sensory overload mm -hmm. across the landscape of humanity. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. So we have a very fast-moving world that can be overwhelming. Hard to think and that's why we have to spend more time in the Word. Yeah. Frank, you had your hand? Yeah, I'm talking about God's will. God is a sovereign God. His will for us is going to be fulfilled no matter what. So even when we do disobey, and even when we do things we shouldn't do, we can never sin beyond God's sovereign purposes for our lives. Right. So whatever His will is for you, not have to worry about it. He's going to get you there. He will. He's God. He's sovereign. And He'll do He'll do it whether we're kicking and fighting or whether we're smiling and going. <laughs> uh, he will do it. So when it comes to His will, I think we have to look to His sovereignty and realize God is a loving Father. He's not playing hide and seek and say, this is what I want for you. See if you can get it. No, he's going to put you there no matter what. So we don't have to worry about fulfilling his will. But as Bruce said, we need to obey. 
Let him do the rest. You know, he'll, he's going to accomplish to you what he has purposed from the beginning before the uh, time ever began. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about his will. Yeah. But we do want to obey him. Well, yes. You remember the, uh, I think it was in the Bill Bright track in the 70s, a big circle. And outside that circle was out of the will of God. And inside the circle was the permissive will of God. And then the small circle had a throne. He said the perfect will of God. Yes, and I won't. I'm not going to get into that here. That'll get us so far off track. (laughs) Let's move on to the second reason Jesus gives here: we're not to worry, and that is because it's uncharacteristic of our faith. Uh, Let's read verses 31 to 33. Do not worry, then, saying, "What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing?" For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's he saying? He's saying worry is inconsistent with our faith in God because it's uncharacteristic of our faith to act like the lost, ungodly people of this world. That's what he means by the the use of that term Gentiles in verse 32. That's a term used in Scripture to refer to the pagans, the, the people without God, without Christ. So those are the people who, who worry about things. Why not? After all, that's all they got going for them. They live for this world. They live to grasp and grab and possess. They've got to get it all on their own. They don't have a God to supply for them. They don't have a God to prom- that promises them anything. They don't have any divine resource available to come to their aid. And so what happens is that they have to do it all on their own because they are all on their own. They're ignorant of God's supply. They have no claim on it in any way. No heavenly father cares for them. So there's no, they do have reason to worry. Have you ever studied the kind of gods that pagans worship? We don't see much idol worship in our nation. Uh, But if you go to places like India or Africa, you'll see a lot of it. And whenever the heathens build their gods, they're gods that are inspired by Satan. There are demons who are the forces behind those gods. And so they are gods of broken promises. They're gods that lack compassion. They're gods of fear and dread. They're gods that have to be appeased. They're gods that everyone's afraid of and not gods that anyone counts on. They are not gods of supply. The people still have to do it all on their own, and they just have to keep trying to appeal to the gods by making sacrifices or offerings or whatever their religion calls for. And since they have vague ideas about the future life anyway, life becomes consumed in the obsession to get and gain health and wealth and security and prestige, and their gods don't help them a bit. Notice the words there, eagerly seek in the phrase for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. That translates a Greek word which is in it's an emphatic form of the word which is normally translated seek. It carries the idea of emphatically seeking, aggressively seeking, eagerly seeking. They seek it with all their might. They are totally consumed with materialistic gratification. It's just Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just grab for all the gusto you can get because that's all there is. And Jesus' point is that God's children are to operate on a completely opposite perspective than the godless, unregenerate pagans of this world. It's unworthy for us to behave that way. Our faith says God will supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He's our heavenly father. He knows what we need, that we need all these things. And God can be trusted. So if I worry about my food, or if I worry about my physical welfare, or if I worry about my clothing, that is to have a worldly mind. Paul says, be anxious for what? Nothing. Nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Those who do not trust in God's goodness and promises miss the whole point of being a Christian. 
So many people are just empty in their profession. They say, oh, I love God and Jesus and I serve him, but they don't believe in God for anything. They worry about everything. They're in the world and they're like the world. But Jesus prayed, Father, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of this world. In other words, keep them separated from Satan and the world. And in Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the sons of the king do not conduct themselves like the devil's beggars. Ask yourself this question. Do I face life like a Christian or a pagan? When things are difficult and the future is insecure, how do I react? You can sum up the question this way. Does my Christian faith affect my view of God? Does, it, does my Christian faith affect my view of life? Do I always place everything in the context of my faith in God? That is, do I face every trial, every possibility, every reality from God's perspective or from man's perspective? Listen, if God is my heavenly father and he knows what I need, then all I need to know is that he cares. And if he cares, then I'm home free. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying. He knows that you have needs. He not only has the knowledge, he has the resources. And then he has the love to provide. So what should you worry about? Nothing. It's unnecessary because of your father. It's uncharacteristic because of your faith. So then look what we ought to be seeking in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, what does it mean to seek his kingdom? It means losing ourselves in obedience to the Lord to the extent that we can say with the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. To seek first God's kingdom is to pour out our lives in the eternal work of our Heavenly Father. And so, and when you get your, your thoughts focused on divine matters, Jesus says that God's going to take care of the physical matters. You see, God doesn't want us involved in the physical. He wants to free us from that. He, so he says, I'll take care of that. You just get busy with the business of the kingdom. Let's take this first one word or one phrase at a time. The word but comes from a little Greek word which is primarily used to emphasize a contrast. So I would suggest that in this passage we translate it on the other hand or instead. In contrast to worrying about where the necessities of life are going to come from and rather than being like the pagans and focusing on materialism and pursuing possessions, instead, or on the other hand, you should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not those things. Now, what about the phrase seek first? The word first translates a word which means first in the line of more than one option. In other words, of all the things that you can choose from in life to be occupied with, of all the priorities of life, this is number one. Of all the things you have to be concerned about, and there are many things in life that we have to take some care about, but of all these things, the number one thing is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We have a long list of things, but that's number one. And his kingdom is simply Christ's rule, God's rule, the reign of Christ, the dominion of God. We're to seek that which is eternal. That's what he's saying. We're to be lost in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. That's what will make someone like my bond, the young lady that spoke here at church a few weeks ago, will, willing to go to the mission field 
in a country which is closed to evangelical missionaries where she will have to work in obscurity and say goodbye to all the fashions and freedoms of the Western world to live in a very simple manner and dress like that culture and limit her whole life to that situation because she is not nearly as concerned about those things as she is about the advancement of God's kingdom. So where's your heart? Where's your preoccupation? Are you more concerned with the kingdom or are you more concerned with the world? Are you pouring your energies into gaining the things of this world that are all going to burn up one day? Or are you investing your time, talent, and treasure in God's eternal kingdom? Don't worry about gaining a bunch of stuff in this life because according to scripture, you're a joint heir with Christ. And one day you're going to reign with him forever and ever. So why worry about piling up stuff in this world here because one day you're going to get it all for nothing. We will have an a new heaven and a new earth throughout all of eternity. We'll have all the majesty and riches of eternal heaven. So why waste your time stockpiling stuff here? Second, he says that we're not only to seek his kingdom, but also his righteousness. That is his holiness. If you really want to chase after something, don't chase money. Chase holiness. Chase righteousness. Pursue it. He's talking about practical righteousness. He's saying that when you pursue, pursue godliness, pursue holiness. That means that instead of longing after the things of this world, we're to hunger and thirst for the things of the world to come, which are characterized above all else by God's perfect righteousness and holiness. It's more than longing for something that's ethereal, hard to grasp, and it's in the future. It's also seeking for something that's present and practical. We're not only to have heavenly expectations, but also holy lives. What did Peter say in 2 Peter 3.11? He talked about the destruction of the earth and the heavens as we know them today. And then he asked this question. Since all these things are be, to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Instead of seeking after the materialistic gain of this world, we're to look at everything around us and realize it's all going to burn up, so why are we worried about gaining all these things? We ought to be focused on living holy, godly lives and let our Heavenly Father take care of providing for our needs. So then seek first His kingdom, is to seek to win people into that kingdom so they might be saved and God might be glorified. It is to have our, holy, our Heavenly Father's truth, love, and righteousness evident in our lives and to have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we also seek God's kingdom as we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return as the king and set up his millennial kingdom here on earth and usher in his eternal kingdom. Well, let's move on to the third reason why we're not to worry. It's found in verse 34. It is worry is unwise in light of your future. Look at verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus is saying is don't worry about the future. The future is going to have its own trouble. Just wait until you get to it. It's unwise in light of your future. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now providing for tomorrow is good, but worrying about tomorrow is sin. Because God is the God of tomorrow just like he's the God of today, right? And you remember what it says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did you hear that? They're new every morning. Worry is a tremendous force. It will endeavor to defeat you, and first it begins with today. Worry will endeavor to destroy you today. It'll try to get you to see things today that will get you upset and make you anxious. But if it loses out on today, it's going to keep shoving you into the future until it finds something there that gets to you. That's the way worry functions. I'm afraid there are some people so committed to the sin of worry that when they have nothing in the present to worry about, they just keep marching down the future until they find something. Listen, Jesus says that you've got enough to deal with today. 
If you spend today worrying about the needs of tomorrow, you're going to lose the joy of today. And you may not realize it, but a lack of joy is a sin too. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Twice in the same verse, we're commanded to rejoice. To rejoice is to express joy, and it's an imperative. So to fail to do that is a sin. But many believers lose their joy because of tomorrow. And they miss the victory God gave them today. God gives you resources for each day. So live in the fullness of joy for those resources and use them. Don't push yourself into the future and forfeit the joy of today over some possible tomorrow that may never happen. Because if you ever learn anything about this, remember this one little statement. Fear is a liar. Zach Williams wrote and sang a popular Christian song by that title a few years ago. Fear almost never tells the truth, but it'll cause you to lose the joy of today. And Jesus forbids that. He says tomorrow will take care for itself. In other words, let tomorrow be for tomorrow. And he closes by saying each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, tomorrow is going to have a whole new set of problems and troubles. It's unavoidable. So there's no sense in worrying about them today. God only gives strength for one day at a time. God hasn't given me the grace for tomorrow yet. I won't get that until tomorrow. God gives us his grace for the hour that we need his grace. But if you want to sit now and worry about that, you're going to double your pain without any grace to deal with it. So refuse to worry about tomorrow or the next day or the future because you don't yet have the grace you need to deal with that. Kent Hughes warns about the worrying about tomorrow. Here's what he writes, quote, No Christian should ever be caught in what I call the then syndrome. Then things are going to be trouble free. When I get married, then I'll be beyond trouble. When I have children, when I get a promotion... It is futile to try to live a problem-free life. You can spend all your time and energy fortifying the castle of your life, but there will always be a place that goes unguarded. Tomorrow will have its challenges and trials no matter how hard you try to prevent them." End quote. Folks, we are not to worry about tomorrow. Worry will not destroy tomorrow's trials, but it will sabotage your strength. Worry won't enable you to escape evil, but it will make you unable to cope with it. The truth is that God has promised to provide us the strength to bear our troubles when they come, but we do not have the strength to bear worrying about them. If you add today's troubles to tomorrow's troubles, you just give yourself an impossible burden. So how do you avoid worrying about tomorrow? Well, first of all, you need to believe God and trust his word. I mean, really trust his word. As a believer, you claim that you do. But how many of us so quickly seem to forget that he said in Philippians 4.19 that he will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It's almost as if we say, yes, God, I know that you said that, but unless you meet my needs on my terms, I don't really believe you'll do it. So the first thing to do is believe God and trust his word. And then think about this. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, what that means is that he's going to be doing the same thing tomorrow that he was doing yesterday. So the second thing you need to do is to look back at the past. If you have any questions about his care for you in the future... Look at the past. Did he sustain you then? He'll sustain you in the future. With him, there's no past, present, or future. So worry is a forbidden sin. It's being unfaithful to your father. It's uncharacteristic of your faith. It's unwise in light of your future. John Stott once wrote, quote, 
to become preoccupied with material things in such a way that they engross our attention, absorb our energy, and burden us with anxiety is incompatible with both Christian faith and common sense. It is distrustful of our Heavenly Father, and it is frankly stupid. This is what pagans do, and it is utterly unsuitable and unworthy ambition for Christians." End quote. Listen, we're not spiritual orphans. God didn't dump us out in front of the local fire station with a note with our name pinned on our chest. He loves us. He cares for us. And he has all the resources of eternity in his hand for our disposal. So worry is a sin. The famous Scottish novelist Alistair MacLean once quoted a story from Toller, the German mystic. One day Toller met a beggar. And he said to the poor man, God God give you a good day, my friend. The beggar answered, I thank God I've never had one. Uh, Then Toller said, God give you a happy life, my friend. I thank God, said the beggar, I'm never unhappy. So Toller in his amazement said, what do you mean? The beggar said, well, when it's fine, I thank God. When it rains, I thank God. When I have plenty, I thank God. When I'm hungry, I thank God. And since God's will is my will, and whatever pleases Him pleases me, why should I say I'm unhappy when I'm not? And Toller looked at the man in astonishment and said, Who are you? The beggar said, I'm a king. And the Toller said, Well, where's your kingdom? And the beggar said, very quietly, In my heart. I like that. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Where there is perfect, that's where perfect peace comes from. And it's the opposite of worry. I suppose Solomon provides us an excellent illustration. Solomon didn't pray for riches, did he? He didn't pray for fancy clothes. He didn't pray for fancy food. He didn't pray for long life. Solomon prayed for what? Wisdom. And when he got wisdom, he got all the rest. No one was ever dressed like Solomon. No one was ever as wealthy as Solomon. No one else could ever put on feasts that could match him. After all, just feeding his wives and concubines could have been a monumental event. I mean, the man was incredible. He sought wisdom, and in the getting of wisdom, all the rest was residual. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, It's not an accident that the Puritans of the 17th century became wealthy people. It was not because they hoarded wealth. It was not because they worshipped money. It was just that they were living for God and His righteousness, and the result was that they didn't throw away their money on worthless things. In a sense, therefore, they could not help becoming wealthy. They held on to the promises of God and incidentally became rich. And part of the structure of their obedience to God was to work hard and to save and not be self-indulgent. And if you follow those kinds of standards, God will honor that. Listen, if you worry, it's a sin. It is being unfaithful to your father. It is uncharacteristic of your faith. And it is unwise in light of your future. Don't worry. Trust him and he will provide for all your needs. And thus we come to the end of chapter 6. Any comments or questions before we close? I'm worried that we didn't cover your entire subject. <laughs> sufficiently, huh? Didn't you're worried I didn't cover it sufficiently? Just joking. Well, we're we've definitely been let's put it this way. This stuff is not deep theology, but it sure is practical, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Frank, close us, please. <laughs>